Let's open to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5. It's hard to believe we're already coming to the final chapter in this letter. I hope that it's been spiritually encouraging for you and strengthening to you, helping you to grow in Christ, grow in your relationship with the Lord. 1 John 5 Verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who believes the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whoever has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The Bible says that Christians are overcomers. Like the song that we learned this morning, we're fighting a battle that we've already won. That in Christ, we are not victims, but victors. We walk in the victory of Christ because when we come to the Lord Jesus for salvation, the Holy Spirit unites us with Christ. And so his death becomes our death and his resurrection to power and victory becomes our resurrection to power and victory. We see this theme of overcoming a number of times in in this letter. If you just turn back with me for a moment, chapter 2, verse 13. John is wanting to teach us that when we know the Lord, when we are assured of our relationship with the Lord through Christ, we have a confidence that includes overcoming, that is, overcoming the world. Notice chapter 2 and verse 13. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. There is this concept, this principle of Overcoming the world, overcoming the temptations of the world. Chapter 4, verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. John says that we overcome the false teachings that threaten 
our safety and our spiritual well-being because the one who lives in us is greater than the one who lives in them or in the world. The Holy Spirit is greater than the devil. And then twice in our passage this morning, in chapter 5 and verse 4 and 5, and we'll look at that again shortly. But in today's passage of Scripture, what John does is he makes a connection that is really clear, and that is this, that the only way to overcome the world is to be born of God. That's the only way. And that's the big idea this morning. To overcome the world, you must be born of God. That's clearly what John is making known to us throughout the whole book, but more specifically, more narrowly, more focused in these verses, chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. In other words, there is no way that a sinner can overcome the world apart from having new life from God, to be born of God. And this phrase, born of God, is also a favorite of John's. And so turn back to chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, we've looked at all these passages prior to today's before, but let me remind you what John is saying here. John is not saying that Christians do not struggle with sin. He's not saying that we don't struggle in our lives to overcome certain sins. What he is saying to us is that if we have God's seed abiding in us, that is, if we have the life of God within us by virtue of the Holy Spirit's work, then we will no longer live in a lifestyle of sin. There's a difference between struggling with sin and living in sin. The believer struggles with sin with a longing to overcome it. The unbeliever lives in sin with no care of overcoming it. The pig is happy to wallow in the mire until the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of the heart and we, like the prodigal son, look up from the pig pen and we want something different. We're sick of sin. We're tired of sin. We're sick and tired of sin. And we want to get over it. That's the heart of the believer. A longing to overcome Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So those who are born of God will love those who are in the family of God, as well as love God. A couple more times in today's passage. Just skip that for a moment and look at 5.18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. There's that distinction. Does not live in sin. 
but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So to overcome the world, to overcome sin, you must be born of God. No religion on this planet will ever cause you to be born of God. No religion on this planet will ever cause you to overcome the world or to overcome sin. Only a miracle of God, the miracle of regeneration, whereby the Holy Spirit breathes spiritual life into our dead souls, awakening us unto God, only that will cause us to be born of God. God is the one who does the birthing. We don't. The Holy Spirit is the one who causes us to be born again. We don't. Just like you didn't birth yourself into this world, you will never birth yourself into the family of God. The Holy Spirit does that as he awakens our heart to the reality of who we are as sinners, shows us the beauty of Christ as Savior, and then we, in empty-handed faith, receive the promise of eternal life and forgiveness from God. So we're thinking this morning along with John about what it means to be born of God and what are the implications of that. So notice with me, please, three truths about being born of God. Three truths about being born of God. And this impacts, then, the way we understand overcoming the world. Number one, being born of God precedes faith and shows itself with love for true Christians. Now notice verse one, the way that this is worded by John very carefully, and this is not the only time in this Epistle, and certainly not the only time in the Bible, whereby it is taught that in order for us to respond in faith, the Holy Spirit must do a work within us through the gospel to awaken us, to awaken us out of our stupor, to awaken us out of our spiritual deadness. Verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, past tense. So what happens first, the believing or the borning of God, the being born of God? Clearly, John is saying, you can't believe in Jesus unless you're born of God. In other words, you and I are powerless to respond to the gospel apart from a divine work of the Holy Spirit whereby he does as Jesus promised. He convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He breathes into us the breath of life, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, like the wind, you cannot see the wind, but you can see what the wind does. So the Holy Spirit breathes new life into us via the gospel, awakening us in order to respond in empty-handed faith to Jesus and to the offer of God for salvation and eternal life. To be born of God means to be reborn by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. So when the Holy Spirit calls us to Christ through hearing the gospel, he makes us alive and we respond in faith. 
He called my name, and I walked out of that grave. I didn't walk out of the grave, and then he called my name, for no one will ever walk out of a grave except Jesus. But when he calls your name, when the Holy Spirit of God so narrowly focuses upon your heart with the gospel and he calls your name, that is a call you will respond to. For he is God, and if he says, come to life, you will come to life. And oh, how that should encourage us as we think about praying for our unsaved family and friends and witnessing to them. We can do everything that we are supposed to be doing to open their eyes to the truth of Christ, and yet it is only the Holy Spirit who can truly open their eyes and call their name that they might walk out of that grave. It is a miracle. Whether a boy or girl gets saved at the age of five or an older man or woman in their 70s comes to life in Christ, It is a miracle of God. For we are dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, as Paul says in Ephesians. Before conversion, before regeneration, we are unresponsive to God. We cannot respond to God, for we are dead. Not only were we gone astray, but we were also choosing our own way. Therefore, reducing salvation, think this, reducing salvation to a mere decision for Christ is a massive ministry mistake and misleading to people. Now let me explain what I mean. Do I mean that we do not call people to come to Christ to believe? No, that's not what I'm saying. For God calls us to believe. He calls us to come to Christ, to make a choice. But when you reduce salvation to that decision, intellectual decision of the will, apart from the Holy Spirit's rototilling work in the garden of the heart to prepare it for the soil of the seed of the word to land upon good soil, you won't get the kind of fruit that God says he wants to produce. If that's your approach to ministry, you may get a lot of people who make a decision for Christ, But the question is, are they really alive spiritually? So be careful. Be careful that you don't sell the gospel to people as if you are a door-to-door salesman selling vacuum cleaners. I know they don't do that anymore. Remember the day my mom got sucked into buying a Kirby thing was so beastly heavy. You had to have massive upper body strength 
to push that Kirby through the shag carpeting. In fact, we got rid of it after my mom's car accident that rendered her left side um, uh, badly damaged. And um, so we were so glad when we had our eyes opened and we bought a Eureka. And it was so nice and lightweight. It's light enough for you kids, Mom said. <laughs> and that's where I learned to vacuum. So the whole point is, let us be very careful in our gospel ministry that we don't reduce the gospel to some kind of a product that we sell to people, that they just make a decision to buy. Because when that product fails, or their arms become too weak to push it, they may be tempted to go and get a different product. Let us be sure that we present Christ for who he really is. He is both Savior and Lord, and he is worthy of us following him to the end of our days. Amen? This is our Savior. Because until the Lord's sovereign grace intrudes into our lives, and gives us a new heart, we cannot come to God. But praise God, Christ did everything for us. He did everything that was required to open the one and only way to God. And so John says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. As I said last week, and I will say Again, if you are here this morning and you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, it is not because you woke up one day all of a sudden smarter than you were the day before. It is because the Holy Spirit in God's sovereign grace chased you down and called your name and you walked out of that grave. And you are now a new person a new creature in Christ. Paul explains this further in Colossians 2, where he writes, you were, he's talking to believers, so he's saying to us, you were dead, past tense. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. We are overcomers because he first overcame. We are alive unto God in Christ because Jesus triumphed over the grave. If you believe in a saving way, if you believe you're banking on this, your heart's trust is in Jesus in this way to save you from your sins 
You have been born of God, John says. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So before you can love God, and before you can love others, you must be born of God. You must have a new nature. Because Paul goes on in Colossians 3 to tell us that the new birth then produces a new life which is filled with love for other Christians. It says in chapter 3, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones. In other words, if, if you have been raised up with God, with Christ, that you're, you're alive unto God in him, then you are one of God's chosen ones. You are holy and loved by him. And so put these things on, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In your closet, you have belts. In your closet, you have ties of some sort. Not these kind of ties, but these kind of ties. And that tie or that belt keeps everything together. That's what Paul is saying. Put on all these different Christian virtues like compassion and kindness, but tie it all together in love. Why? Because if you're born of God, then you'll love the Father. And if you love the Father, then you're going to love his children. You're going to love those who are born of him. So to love God and to love others, you must be born of God. You must have the life of God within you. There's a second truth I want you to see, verses 2 and 3. Being born of God produces eagerness to obey God's word, which is true freedom. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Now that's it seemed confusing at first, that sentence. But what John is saying is that when we love God and obey his commandments, it's easier to love people because part of his commandments is, is telling us how to love people, but also with the Holy Spirit is the power to love people. We all have difficult people in our lives, and sometimes we are the difficult person in our life. We all have people in our lives that are difficult to love, and sometimes we are the one who is most difficult to love. But by the grace of God, we can learn to love one another. For this is the love of God, verse 3, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I love that phrase. His commandments are not burdensome. 
See, the new birth turns the burden of God's law into the law of liberty. In fact, James even calls the Bible the law of liberty in his letter. That's really encouraging because contrary to the lies of the world, there, uh, which says that there is freedom outside of God, in other words, we've got to break free from all these constraints that God's word places upon us. The Bible is too, too strict, it's too harsh, it's too narrow-minded. We need to break free from that. <clears throat> Those who think they are breaking free from God's word are actually only transferring to another prison. That's all that's really happening. Because in their so-called freedom, they will again find bondage. Bondage to their sin. Bondage to the lies of the world. Jesus says to those who believe, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, true freedom True contentment, true joy are found within the pasture of God's word. So we can imagine God's word as being like the fence around the pasture where all is well and all is joyful and content. There will be hard times, there will be pain, but in the depths of our heart, we will know that God is for us no matter who or what is against us. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And then he says this, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My commandments are not burdensome. When you have the new nature within you, you will grow in delight for God's commandments not disdain for them. You will want to walk in obedience. You will want to please the one who died and rose again for you. So John is saying here that the new birth produces a new love for God and for his word, and that is when we find true freedom and true joy in the walk of obedience. In my read through the Bible schedule uh, this week, I came across an illustration of this in Genesis 29. It was an unlikely find. Genesis 29 and 30 are such discouraging chapters. But Jacob, um, who later became named Israel, he came to an agreement with a man named Laban to work seven years to, in order to 
get one of his daughters, Rachel, the more beautiful of the two, the scripture says. And Genesis 29, 20 says, So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. That labor, that servitude, seemed but a few days because of his love for her. The commandments of God are not burdensome when they are motivated by love, by love for God. And that love for God can only be produced by the new nature. About 20 years ago or so, I stumbled upon an old Puritan sermon by Thomas Chalmers called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's a tough read. I encourage you to read it at some point. When I teach biblical counseling classes in various places, I actually require my students to read it twice because it takes at least twice to get it. I'm glad preaching isn't that way anymore, but I hope it isn't. (laughs) Um, But the whole point of it is that God created us with wanters inside of us. Our hearts are wanters. We want things. That's why we sin, by the way. Not because God created the sin, but sin corrupted the wanter. And so the wanter that God put in Adam and Eve that was meant to be solely, exclusively for God has now been corrupted by sin. And so we want. We sin because we want. We sin because that, that temptation is promising to us some kind of pleasure. And Chalmers is correct in saying that you can't just put to death your wanter. You can't just shoot your wanter and say, there, I'm done with it. I won't struggle with that sin anymore. The only way to overcome sin is to have a higher affection, to want something more than sin itself. That's the only way. You have to ask God to change the desires of your heart, that you will want Christ more than you want sin. And so when we are motivated by the highest of all loves, love for God, his commandments are then not burdensome. They might still be hard to obey, don't get me wrong, but we have the Holy Spirit now within us and a new nature to obey, and so there is this growing desire to obey and delight in his commandments. Then there's a third truth I want you to see. A third truth about being born of God. Being born of God produces Christ-centered faith, which leads to victory. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith. 
But it's not our faith alone. It's the content of our faith that makes the difference. That's why I've said that it produces a Christ-centered faith, because that's what John is doing for us as well. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? There's so many people in the world today that just say, well, if I just had more faith. And that isn't the issue. The issue is, what is the object of your faith? Because you can have tons of faith, but if it's in the wrong object, it's useless. So saving faith has an object. Your faith does not save you. Let me say that again because I can see the shock on your faces. Your faith does not save you. The Christ in whom your faith relies saves you. Do you see the difference? One is all about me mustering up more faith. One is all about turning my eyes to the one who already has promised to save me. Your faith does not save you. Christ saves you, and you receive his gift of grace through empty-handed faith. See, faith are the empty hands by which you receive Christ and all of the promises that are connected to him. Faith must have the right object. And Christ is the only worthy object of our faith. And so John says, we overcome by means of our faith in Christ. We will be victorious because he is victorious. We will not be victorious because we've all of a sudden become strong enough to say no and to walk in victory. We will become victorious because he is victorious. And in union with him, we are relying upon him more and more each day, falling more in love with him more each day, and thus wanting sin less because we want him more. Romans 8 says, What shall we say to these things? All of these promises that, that Paul has been telling us about. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, Paul says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Not through our own strength. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What is the object of your faith? Is it yourself and your own ability to overcome sin and live for God? Or is it in Christ who has already overcome? John makes this connection in the book of Revelation. Eight eight times in the first three chapters, and I'm not going to read every verse to you, but you can do it on your own. He uses the same word, essentially, but it's translated conquerors. So it's overcomers and conquerors. But over and over, he refers to us as conquerors. To the one who conquers, he says in 2.17, this is Jesus speaking to the churches. I will give some of the hidden manna I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone to the one who conquers. If the Holy Spirit has called your name and you have walked out of that grave, this Jesus has overcome for you in him You are a conqueror. You are a victor, not a victim. Recently, I watched the Lord of the Rings trilogy again with three of my kids. And one of my favorite lines in the whole trilogy is in the second film in The Two Towers, in which Gandalf says to Aragorn, Uh, at the beginning of the Battle of Helm's Deep. Gandalf says, Look to my coming on the first light on the fifth day at dawn. Look to the east. It's such an incredible moment in the film. Because at, at the last moment when, when the enemies have taken the hold and all appears to be lost, the morning sun breaks from behind the hillside and blinds the enemies. And Gandalf, on his white horse, leads the horsemen to victory. In Christ there is an infinitely better ending. We read in Revelation 19 of how in the midst of those final battles, the Lord Jesus will return on his white horse with all the armies of heaven with him to once and for all conquer all of his enemies. And the scripture says, we who believe in him will be a part of that army. 
we overcome because he already overcame. So when you get discouraged, look to the soon return of Jesus. When you doubt that you will ever overcome your sin struggles, look to Jesus. Look to the Jesus of the past who conquered sin on the cross and rose victorious from the grave. Look to the Jesus of the present who is interceding for you right now at the right hand of God. He is praying for you to walk in victory. And look to the Jesus of the future who is coming again. And when he comes, he will defeat all of his enemies. Jesus wins. If you haven't read the last chapter, read it. Jesus wins. And we win with him. Father, thank you. Thank you for the great encouragement that this scripture is to our hearts, for we all struggle with discouragement and doubt, and sometimes we wonder, will we ever overcome this world? Will we ever overcome the temptations of this mortal flesh that we live in? Will we ever overcome the sins that you long for us to walk away from, that we might walk in the freedom of obedience? Oh God, so turn our eyes to Jesus. Cause us to stop looking at ourselves, thinking that somehow we can do it. Let us instead, Lord, look by faith to the one who has already done it and so walk in the victory that belongs to us in Christ. Thank you, Father, that you already call us overcomers in Christ. I pray that the Spirit of God will so work in our hearts that we will walk in the victory that already belongs to us In Jesus' name, amen.